Find with me in your Bible, uh, Hosea chapter 2. Great. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're asking now for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to come. Spirit of wisdom, revelation, come. Open the eyes of our heart. Speak to us right now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Father, I'm praying in this moment blinders would fall. I'm asking for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to come. Begin to swirl through this room. The whirlwind of your Spirit just begin to flow through this place. Lord, I'm praying, let your word become life to us. And I'm asking God, speak to us tenderly. Reveal to our hearts. Show us reality in you. Reality in the knowledge of God. Lord, we're grateful. We're very grateful for what you're doing with IOP Atlanta. Amazed and grateful, Jesus. So God, I'm asking, would you come even now? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, would you come? Come. Fill this room. Fill our hearts. Be the teacher. Teach us from the inside. Speak to us from the inside. Reveal truth. Truth. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Good. Hosea chapter 2. The book of Hosea is just one of those very, very cool prophetic books. It's, um, I, I like the book where the, the prophet, he has a message, but he is the message. And Hosea is that. He has a message to, to relate to God's people, but God made him the message. And, and that's one of the, that's one of the, the interesting things about the Lord. And I believe he's going to do that more and more as, as time begins to, to grow short. I believe that he's going to, uh, begin to more and more make the messenger. He's going to make the messenger the message. And so if it's, um, somebody who has a, uh, message of the fasted lifestyle, they'll have radical testimonies of the provision of God inside of a lifestyle where they've continually turned the blessing back to the kingdom. And while they'll, they'll proclaim living a fasted lifestyle, their life will have amazing encounters where God is, has supernaturally provided for them and then they continue to give back to the kingdom and God continues to supernaturally provide. And I believe God's doing that. I believe He's raising up messengers who He's actually making the message. In this time, that's, that's a, that's a scary kind of a thing if you think about it. You know, I mean, that's like, I just feel like I have a message calling people to abandonment in the gospel and preaching overseas and martyrdom. <laughs> most people, it's like, most people don't want to be made the message, but you know what, you know what you find? The guy that feels like he has a message to call people to radical abandon and martyrdom, he's totally anticipating getting martyred. And the Lord's making him the message. And that's what's going on. And that's what's going on with Hosea. In chapter 1, the Lord begins to speak to him in verse 2. 
And he says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has created, uh, committed great harlotry. Thank you. Awesome. Bear with my voice a little bit. I was out on the uh, street in Charlotte last night um, at a ministry called Uptown Charlotte where they do worship evangelism right in the middle of the city in downtown Charlotte. And the wind was blowing. It was like wind chill, like 30 degrees. We were out there freezing. And um, they asked me to, to pray. And I said, you know, I just want to keep a low key. Uh, you know, it's, it's good. I'm, I just want to watch this and feel this. This is awesome. And they had probably 100 to 150 young people out there just praising God in abandonment. And, uh, and, and some older people too. And, uh, the passerbys were automatically drawn to the life that was there. It was cool. And, um, finally they went into this thing where the drums was kind of just doing this kind of a, a, a war beat, you know, like there was warfare going. You could just really feel it. And, and, um, they just said, listen, any, if you want to pray, Billy, just whatever you feel. And I just had something begin to, to uh, rumble in my spirit about God releasing authority on their gathering unto shifting things in the city of Charlotte and the climate and the spirit. And I believe God was doing that in, in what they were doing and that, that he's actually bringing them to a place where that's going to be reality. For, they've been going for four years. Every single Friday they've been on the streets in Charlotte worshiping and praising God. It's powerful. And so this 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 moment came where this they had this beat and there's a hundred kids and they're, I mean, you know, they're kids, they're 28, but they're out there and they're jumping up and down praising God with a band. And I said, I said, I think I feel something. I grabbed the guy and said, I feel something to release some authority. That's got to release authority on this. And I prayed about three lines and my entire voice was gone. <laughs> Within three lines, I said, oh, authority, God. And that was it. And something actually did break a little bit and they just went in a whole nother, it was neat. But anyway, so bear with my voice. I said, that's why I was telling you that. But he tells Hosea, to take a wife of harlotry. And, I, and I've, I've considered what would that be like. Hosea is a prophet. He's a man of God, a holy man. I mean, that's way politically incorrect. I mean, it's just, just like way out of bounds politically incorrect. You want me to do what? You've got to be kidding me. It's like, man, I, I, I used to be a prophet, but now I know I'm not hearing God, you know. And, uh, and I just kind of, how did that happen, God? What did that look like, you know? How, how did you get this holy man to, to, to marry a prostitute? How did that happen? And I just, I just have a picture of it, you know? Uh, you know, one day there's Hosea and he's in the market and he, he looks across and, and there's this woman, Gomer, this, this prostitute. And he, and he thinks to himself, oh, She's she's a harlot. She needs she needs to repent and get right with God. He just has this sort of self righteous thing. Maybe day one, you know, just kind of ugh. I wish you know what's she doing in the market. He kind of walks, you know, that day kind of goes home and he's, he's thinking about her that night. He's like, oh, that harlot. What's she doing out there? And just, but he's kind of just still thinking about her. So the next day he's out there in the market and there she is again. And again he thinks, ugh. And then he kind of goes. I wonder what her name is. I mean, she obviously has a name. Like, I wonder who she is, you know, what her life is, how it's, how it's degraded this far. And, oh, God, bless her, you know. He goes home that night. Kind of got this woman on his mind. He's like, that's weird, you know. 
Next day, he sees her, and he's thinking, surely she has a history of past. There's things going on. There's a reason she's out here. And he's just kind of, what's your name, and what's your story? And he, you know, in the middle of this conversation, he kind of, what am I doing? You know, and he, okay, thanks, bye. You know, he's gone. Now he's home. You know, he's going home. He's thinking, well, I'm a holy man. I, I'm talking to a prostitute. I don't know what I'm doing here. This makes no sense. So obviously, I, you know, I rebuke myself. You know, he's, he's like, what am I thinking? The next day, he's in the marketplace again, and his heart is softened toward this woman. He's realizing she is a plight that he knows nothing of. He looks across at her, and he's thinking to himself, man, her life is broken. It's in shambles. Huh. Their eyes meet, and they kind of nod. And He goes home that night, and he thinks, what is happening to me? He begins to sense affection in his heart towards this prostitute. His heart is all of a sudden softened toward this woman. Just a week earlier, he was thinking, you know, she shouldn't even be out of here. She should get right with God and just move on. And now his heart is tender and he's thinking to himself, ah, this is very strange, God. I don't know what's happening to me, but God, I, I, I'm sensitive towards her. And I help God. I don't know why. The next day, he's in the marketplace again, and there she is, and they're in their same spots. And This time, he looks over, and she looks over, and then their eyes meet. He realizes, bam, there's an explosion of love in his heart for this woman. And he, and he grips his, his chest and his clothes, and he's, he's horrified and love-struck in one shot. We don't need Cupid in the story, because the Lord had ordained it. And somehow through the passage of time, he says, I want you to be my wife. He joins himself to a prostitute. And the Lord then makes it very clear to him and says, okay, the reason you've done that is because my people have prostituted themselves. And therefore, I am their husband and I am joined to them regardless of their sinful state. And you are a symbol of that to my people. Powerful. You're going to consider the divine humiliation. The holy, perfect God, completely holy and clean, perfect in all his ways. And he says, You know what? Even though you have gone after other lovers, even though you have been a wife of harlotry to me, I am faithful to you and I love you and I join myself to you regardless of your wanderings. And my servant Hosea is a sign of my devotion to you. As he's devoted to Gomer. Oh, and he's taken a wife of harlotry. I am so to you, my people. It's powerful. Can you imagine? Think about the divine, perfect God. And the humiliation in that. Not only that he marries a people. I mean, he's he's. From everlasting to everlasting, without beginning or end. He's totally eternal, totally perfect, completely other than. He's, you know, the most high God, far above all other things. And he says, I will join myself to a people. I mean, that's amazing in itself. That's humiliating in itself. But even, you know, further, it's a people of harlotry. And he says, 
Even though you've wandered and even though you've left and even though you've chosen other gods and other lovers and even though you've found your portion in sin and you've lavished yourself with sin and other lovers, I love you and I am faithful to you. The divine humiliation that you and I have never been embarrassed at that level. In fact, the greatest embarrassment a human has ever had doesn't touch the level that God chose to embarrass Himself and humiliate Himself in coming down to our level and marrying us, a wife that's actually a wife of harlotry. Wow. That's why I like Hosea. He makes the man the message. It's powerful. So he begins to say a few things to the people of God. And Hosea chapter 2 is one of those chapters at a glance, you'll, you'll get a few good lines out of it and it will just go over your head. At a, if you just read it ca- in a casual reading and at a glance, it uses language like, and, you know, the Lord is answering the heavens and the heavens are answering the earth and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, what is that? And at, at a casual reading, you go, huh, that's cool, but it's most, it's like most of the other prophetic books, which, you know, we kind of read them, we kind of read them like we read, you know, the magazine, you know, it's like we blow through the article and we get a few bullet points out of it and that's kind of it. But Hosea, you can't afford to read Hosea that way. Cause it's too rich. And Hosea chapter two has major implications as it relates to the end of the age and the great revival and the great harvest to come. Hosea two is, is one of my favorite chapters because for years I would, I would search the scripture to find something that said something about revival. And it's, it's challenging to find that word. In fact, you can't find it in the New Testament. There's, there's a Greek word that's anapsuxis and it's, it's used in Acts and it's, um, recovery of breath and it's not translated revival, but it, it means the same thing and it's used once in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see this word revive us over and over, but there are actually now, understand this. There are actually entire prophetic chapters in the Bible that point to a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a worldwide way with the nations coming to salvation. There are entire chapters in the Old Testament. It's powerful. Isaiah 60 is one of those. And Hosea 2 is one of those. And and so Hosea 2, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an incredible chapter because of that. But it's also an incredible chapter because it's the first time in the Bible that God reveals himself as a bridegroom God. He's, prior to this, Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. He actually prophesied before Isaiah. Uh, prior to this, you never see the Lord use the terminology bridegroom or husband as it relates to himself in relationship with his people. It's father and Lord and master. And in Hosea, he says, I want to take you to another level of understanding of the position of my heart toward you. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to, um, expand on the revelation of even father and, and I want to say this, I'm, I am father to you, but you know what else I am to you? I am husband. And I'm married to you. 
I am joined to you. And Hosea is the first place where we see that. God saying, I have made it a point that my relationship with you would be more than just father and children, but it would be divine partnership as husband with you as wife. It's powerful. If you can get it, it's the first time he says, you and I will be uh, partners. The divine says to the finite and the fallen and the defective, he says, you and I will be partners. See, the bridal paradigm, it begins in Hosea. And that what that is, the bridal paradigm is the view or the lens that we look at the kingdom of God and we see God as a bridegroom God who is radically in love, with fiery, passionate love, fiery in love with his people. That's the bridal paradigm. That he, he says, I love you and I want to marry you and I want to partner with you forever. And I'm glad about it. Even unto divine humiliation, even unto the fact that my people have been in harlotry. It matters none to me for I will stay faithful to you regardless of your state. Say amen or oh me. This is good. This is what keeps you going in Christianity when all the urgency wears off. When all the, you know, intense pressure of the planet and all the challenges of life and all the hellfire and brimstone messages wear off, what keeps energy in your heart at the end of all of it is the fact that God is radically burning with love for you. In a corporate way, but also in a very personal way. And most of us will believe that God loves people. And then we have to dial it down real tight and we go, but do we believe that God loves me? And then we kind of go, well, of course I believe it. Yes, Jesus loves me. I know the song. But then what we do is we go, I know he loves me when I do right. Or I know he loves me when I keep all the commandments. And I know he loves me when I perform well. But he says, no, I love you when you're a harlot. It's hard to receive, isn't it? He says, I love you when you've joined yourself to everything that would separate yourself from me. I love you in that. I love you when you've chased down other lovers. In Hosea 2, the first 13 verses paint a picture of the divine discipline, even in that place of us as the people of God, running headlong after other lovers. He says, I will do anything I can to let you know how much I love you. Look at verse 6. Talks about people of God, they've run away from him and they've adultery and harlotry and just, it's just, it's rough language and And then he says, and therefore, behold, I will hedge you up. I will hedge up your way with thorns. And I will wall you in. So you cannot find your path. And he says, but she, my my people, she will chase other lovers. 
But at this point, she won't even overtake them because I have put, think, consider that. He says, I have put a, uh, it's kind of like the picture I get is a courtyard of thorns around her. She runs one way, ah, she hits the thorns and I want something else. I want something. I, ah, and she runs full on into a wall of thorns. Come on, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> and she, I want out, ow, and she's bleeding and bloodied and she's running to the back and, 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 you know, most of the time when we're in that position, we're going, devil, get away. <laughs> the guy goes, I'm trying to get your heart. You know, it's painful. But I love you so much. I will even wall you in with thorns so that when you chase other lovers, lovers you'll realize it brings nothing but pain. She says, I, I'll go after my other lovers who give me bread, my water, and all these things. And he says, I'll hedge up your way with thorns. I'll wall you in. So she cannot find her past paths. Even to the place where you can't even find your way. She says, I will chase other lovers, but not overtake them. She says, she will seek them, but she will not find them. And there it is. In verse 7, part at the end, it says, Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. It's hard when we learn that way, isn't it? <laughs> But I want to tell you, the zeal of the Lord is so for His people and so for us, He would even go to that extent to hedge us in with thorns, even to the place of pain. I mean, real pain. Thorns don't feel nice. It's not like a sore muscle. It's like, ow! You know? A wall of them. Try that. He said, I'll even hedge you into the place of pain so you'll turn and your heart will come after me. I'm that radically in love with you. He doesn't hurt us to our destruction. He hurts us to our breaking. He imposes things upon us to, to our hearts break and say, God, what am I thinking? And he goes through these verses, and I don't even want to go through them because just read them at your own leisure on a day when you're real happy. Don't read them on a day when you're down. It's like, stay away from Jeremiah, Job, and Hosea 2, first 13 verses when you're down. <laughs> All will be, you know, dark and gloomy and gray. Just use it on a day when you're real happy, and then you get the picture of God's zeal for you. In verse 14, it says, after I've divinely disciplined her, she's actually turned her way to me. He says, therefore, behold. Behold. I like that word, behold. It's, you know, it's, it's the voila of God. You know, like, people have the curtain over something to say, voila! And they show something amazing, right? Behold, in the scripture, is the voila of God. He goes, behold, watch what I'll do. He goes, behold, I'll operate in three different ways with my people. And the first one is I'm gonna allure them. I believe that verse 14 shows uh, in dramatic fashion, three ways that God deals with His people, especially at the end of the age. It, it, it shows the operations of the heart of God and the activity of God towards His people here at the end of the age. And I know it's at the end of the age because as you go through these verses, you find that we're at a time where the entire world, uh, all the nations of the world end up with a spirit of revival in them at the end of this chapter. Come on. And so he says this, he says, behold, number one, first thing I'll do, my activity towards my people is, number one, I will allure them. I will allure her. 
This is the reality when God begins to whirl around your life and everywhere you go, you look at the trees and you go, it's beautiful, it looks like Jesus' face. I mean, there's like a whirlwind of activity, come on, around your life and everything is speaking to you of the love of God and the draw of the Spirit of God. I entered a little season of that um, in the first few months of 2003, three or four months of 2003, I was in a divine whirlwind and my heart was getting allured toward the Lord in a whole nother way than I'd, than I'd ever experienced. And, and without a prayer room, my prayer life exploded to two and three and four and five hours a day without a prayer room. And it was, I was being allured and captured. And I believe God is doing this sovereignly to people all over the place right now. And their hearts are beating out of their chest and longing is beating in their heart. And they find themselves going through their daily jobs. I hear this a lot, actually. They'll be do- doing their job and they're trying to be a good servant and a-, and a good steward. And they're doing their job and they're doing a terrible job because all they're doing is thinking about Jesus. And, you know, you just chalk that one up. You know, I'm not saying be, be you know, reckless in your job. You need to be a good witness and a good worker. But sometimes one of those, some of those days you got to chalk them up to the kingdom is like, I don't know what happened to me that day. All I could do is think about Jesus and I, you know, I put pepperonis on and I'm supposed to put on mushrooms. I don't know. And he, he's doing something in the hearts of his people all over the place right now and their hearts are getting allured. All of a sudden he's beginning to reveal, uh, this reality of his beauty. So it's interesting because you don't really think about God like, you don't you first just go, he's beautiful, right? We think about him as strong and he's a king. He is that. And he's a judge. And he's eternal. But in that, in all of that, and, and he's fearsome, he's ferocious. But even in all of that, he's incredibly beautiful. You know what I'm saying? He, he is He's the original fatal attraction. You look at him, you go, wow, he's amazing. Wow. That's why it's unapproachable light. It's not unapproachable like don't come near. It's unapproachable in that there's a magnet of, of desire pulling you toward the, the center of where he is. And as you're getting closer and closer, you're crumbling under the power of it. And most of the time we think, we don't think of this beautiful God. I'm telling you, He's the most beautiful of all. There's nothing under creation that comes close to comparing to Him. He's absolutely mesmerizing to the human heart. And so what He does is He begins to reveal His nature to us, and we get this thing called fascination. You know, it's a longing of your heart to be wowed. Did you know that? You know, it's the wow factor. You want to be, you want to be wowed. You want something to impress you. You want to, you know, you want to, you want to go to the movie and go, wow, wow. I mean, that's what the entertainment industry lives on is the wow factor. Cause we're made that way to be wowed. We want stuff to, to surprise us and we want stuff to, to look cool. Isn't that right? And God, the whole principle of the kingdom is on the very fact of this, that God is the coolest looking thing there is. It's the most beautiful thing there is. There's more wow points with God than anything else. And so when we see Him, the heart, it, I mean, when you really see Him, I'm not talking about, you know, just veiled, but when you really see Him, the heart just goes, wow. 
wow. And, I mean, the full-blown wow. You know, the 10 on the scale. On the wow scale, it's a 10. See, what we do is we take things that are a 2 and we make them a 10. But he really is a 10. I propose that we've only ever had 2s and 3s on the wow scale. Steven Spielberg, Star Wars, your wow is about a 2, pal. It's just reality. We spend billions of dollars on these things. And I'm telling you, God is a 10 on the scale. And and he's, he's created your heart with a longing to be wowed. And that's what this whole alluring thing is about. And so what happens is scales begin to fall from our eyes. We begin to come in contact with a God who is beautiful and he's magnetic to our hearts. We begin to take Revelations 4 in a real way. And we begin to look at Ezekiel 1. And we begin to see that there's this God. He, and he, he's upon a throne. Behold a throne. And one sat upon it. And he's like a jasper. He's radiant and glorious and beautiful and dazzling. He's like diamond in, in his appearance. And he's surrounded with thrones. And elders upon their thrones. And, and there's four living creatures before the throne. And they're full of eyes in front and in back. They've got different facial features. and They say, holy is the Lord. I think about those eyes. Consider that. Consider those eyes all over those creatures. They're before the throne. And all day and all night for eternity, those eyes receive divine information about the beauty of God all the time. Every eye, perhaps another facet. They're just, I mean, they're just... You know, they're just like sucking in, you know, revelatory information on the beauty of God, sounds and colors. And, and I mean, you know, it's, it's 3D, it's 4D, it's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's more uh, expressive than anything we have in this realm. And there they are, four living creatures covered in eyes, revelatory as can be. And all they can do is perceive information about this one on the throne. And then all they can say is, holy. Every time they see him, they turn the corner of the throne. They're flying with six wings. They, they fly and they fly with two. They cover their, their eyes with two and they, they cover their feet with two and they fly. And every time they come around the throne, they say, holy are you. You're holy. You're holy. More attributes. Holy. More, more revelatory information of beauty. You're holy. And they just, it just goes on and on and on for eternity. There's a crescendo in this this beautiful place where it's called the throne room where our beautiful God lives. And there's this crescendo of beauty and these these living creatures, they're bringing, they're taking in all this information about this one and they're just overwhelmed and they begin to proclaim holy. And when they do that, all the elders kind of just, they just like lose it. Well, says they, they fly, they go flying off the throne and they throw their crowns all day long, forever. I mean, come on. And so when you begin to see him, he goes, did you know? And he does it so kindly to us. He goes, did you know I look good? You know, this is like our prayer closet. This is, this is boiled down to, you know, you're praying one day. And he goes, hey, I look good. Did you know that? And you, you go, huh? And you go, yeah, the way that you liked the way that car looks. He goes, I actually look better than that. And you go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, I'm way better than a Mercedes. I look way better than that. He goes, ah. Oh. And you kind of, you know, you kind of walk out of that. And you go, and, and you go to like your friend and you go, you know, God is better looking than a Mercedes. 
And your friend goes, that's nice. And the next day he goes, no, see, well, I do look better than a Mercedes, but I just didn't tell you how much better. Okay, take a Matchbox car, put it next to the Mercedes, and that's one step out of a billion in how much I look better than a Mercedes. And you go, huh? He goes, yeah, I'm holy. And the living creatures, they've got it. (laughs) See, because what they're really saying is, you're other than anything else. And see, once you begin to see him, he begins to touch your heart and he begins to allure you. And, and see, like right now, some of you are like, man, yeah, I bet he is good looking. And you're like, no, 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 he's really good looking. Like, oh, he's, I bet he looks pretty good. Yeah, he does. And the Spirit of God is going, he does. You need to find out about that. And in your heart, there's sort of this allure, allure thing going on. There's this draw going on. There's this enticement to find out about him. And he draws you into this swirl. And all of a sudden, you're caught up in activity. And, and the spirit realm is swirling around your life. And you're caught up in the activity of God. And God's going, I love you. And don't you like me? And you're going, yes. And he's, this is good. And you turn around and somebody pops you with a word. And they go, hey, did you know God's better looking than a Mercedes? I just feel like the Lord's saying that to you. And you go, no way. And there's this activity happening. And it's awesome. You go these seasons like that, and God goes, yes, come near. And you go, yes, Lord. And you draw near to him, and you pray a little more. You draw yourself close to his throne, and he goes, great. And he's doing this all over the planet to tons of people right now. But he, he, he's alluring your heart. He's, he's revealing his beauty and his love for you. He's drawing you in kindness so he can do something with you. He wants to allure you so he can bring you into the wilderness. We wanted to get allured so we could go to the mountain of God. <laughs> like, I'm sure after all those prophetic words and after that swirl and I saw that light that one night and, and it was cool that guy popped me with the word that I got in my prayer class and you were alluring me, you were drawing me, you were, you were loving me and our times were so rich. And every time I just go, Jesus, and you just come and it was just good and I had goosebumps and I thought just surely you were alluring me to take me to the top of the mountain of God. I'm sure we were, you know, we were Psalm 24. Who can ascend? I was sure I was ascending. He goes, no, I was just doing a few little breadcrumbs to bring you out to this wonderful place called the wilderness. Because in that wilderness, I've got to come, I've got to bring you face to face with this reality. And what it is, is this. You are dry and desolate. Without me, you're lost. You don't need just a little more of me. You are totally, totally destroyed. You are under a curse without me for good. Because I want to draw your heart to bring you face to face with this reality of your own barrenness. It's totally what he did to my heart, man. I, I tell you, I, I went through this three, four, five month period of swirl and favor. And it was like, oh, man. Revival's got to be starting next week. He goes, yeah, 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 Billy. I'm sure that's what you think. Come on, just feel the swirl, brother. You know, just feel it, buddy. I love you. Come on. And I'm like, yes, God, I'm with you. Wherever you want to go, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He goes, great. Fire yourself from your job. I go, okay, I'm in. He goes, great. And it's swirling around me. He goes, good. Sit in a prayer room. I go, ah, yes. Oh, yes, God, you've allured my heart. This is beautiful. Lord, that guy's playing the same song for the fifth day in a row. That worship team is like, 
That same woman, she sings sharp every time, God. Have you noticed? Have you? Did, did you notice that, Lord? He goes, yeah, I got you right where I want you. Oh, I love you. Okay. It was cool for a week, Lord. Like, I felt you for a week, but, like, I don't feel anything now. He goes, yeah, you're doing good. I'm like, no, I, I, I don't have anybody to preach to. I don't have anybody to call me pastor. I don't... What's going on here? And he goes, oh, you're doing great. Stay right there. What he did is he took me and he swirled all this stuff around me. And he said, okay, fire yourself from your position in ministry and go sit in a prayer room for three months and come to grips with this reality that you are bored with me. Come face to face with your barrenness. Let me introduce you to myself. Here's a book. Here's some worship songs that they'll sing every day over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And here's me. And he goes, now is your heart satisfied? He said, your heart was allured when all the swirly stuff was going and you were propped up with all your ministry and all your title and all your cool things to do and all your cool messages to preach and all your cool places to go. You were really allured when you had lots going and you had the props up under your arm. You were so allured in that environment. What about when there's nothing but me, Billy? Then how allured are you? And I'm telling you right now, he is taking us. He's taking the church. He's taking IHOP. He's taking you that have just joined staff. Way to go. He's taking you in allurement to the wilderness. I guarantee you, in a day, in a week, in a minute, in an hour, you'll go, what am I doing here? I guarantee you. Everything was cool when I had all my cool trappings and my stuff. He goes, no, no, no. Stay there where it's dry. I need you to feel the pain of having nothing because that's what you have. You go, no, no, I'm real cool. Remember we had all this allure stuff? I'm, I'm cool. He goes, no, you're really not that cool. No, no, I really am cool. He goes, not so. Stay in the wilderness. Feel it. Get well acquainted with it. Finally, when you like give up in the place of the wilderness, you just lay down and you go, ah, what happened to the cool prophetic words? I mean, like, I had that one guy give me the word. He told me I was going to die next week. I, God, could you give me a good one, Lord? You know. <laughs> and finally, when you just go, okay, God, I don't care. You know what, Lord? I love you enough that you are enough. And I just, I'll lay down here in the wilderness and die if this is what you got. <laughs> I'm, I I relegate myself to that. He goes, hey, 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 no problem. He goes, I got it under control. He goes, remember, I'm still God. He said, remember, I'm for your good. He goes, remember, I want to do I want to do this thing called loving kindness to you. I want to bless you. I want to help you. See, he allures your heart. He draws you to the wilderness, and he speaks comfort to you there. That's what the scripture says. He says, I will allure her, draw her to the wilderness, and speak comfort to her there. And that's what he wants to do to you. He wants to bring you, listen listen to me, folks. He wants to bring you face to face with the reality that without him, you can do nothing. You have nothing. You are nothing without him. In fact, what you really think you have, it's way less than that, for real. He wants to bring you to the, the reality of your own barrenness in light of the beauty and the desire that he has for you. 
but to bring to the reality of your own bareness in, with the lens that he want, that he loves you. In kindness, he wants to show you what grade you're really in. And then when he gets you there, he wants to say, it'll be okay though. I promise. I am God and there is none like me. And you can rest in me. You can trust me. I will comfort your heart and speak encouragement to your heart in that place of dryness and barrenness. For sure, that's him. Most of us, though, we don't want to stay in the program long enough to figure out how, you know, what grade we're really in till we get his, you know, hand rubbing through our hair going, hey, pal, you're going to be okay. You're really going to be okay. I remember sitting in the prayer room after three months and I had multiple voices. You, I, 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 I quit counting them, but multiple voices of people with authority not Mike Bickle, but others. He told me that I couldn't do it for an hour, and then he told me I could do it for the rest of the time I was there. <laughs> but multiple voices of, with, of people with authority and others told, who told me there's no way you can plan an IHOP. You need way more than one year in Kansas City if you're going to try to plan an IHOP, number one. And, and number two was kind of like, and we don't know if you can really do it, pal. <laughs> you know, I was like, um, okay, but after you hear that about 10 times, you're like, I've lost my mind. Like, why did I think I could do this? There's just no way. You just get talked into it. You just get no chance. And, and, I, and I go, hey, God, I can't plan an IHOP. He goes, exactly. He goes, I was really needing you to get that point across, like get that real clear. That's why we're in the wilderness, man. Because <laughs> I need you to figure that one out now. And I remember after three uh, months of sitting in that prayer room and just dealing with my boredom with God. I thought he was so awesome. And then I was like, I'm bored with you, Lord. And I was like, oh, God, but I do need you and I love you. And he goes, yeah, me too. And I go, but God, I don't think I can do this. I'm not nowhere near as cool as I thought I was. And he goes, exactly. You're not that cool. And I go, oh, you're not encouraging me. And I remember just sitting there one day and I go, God, what am I going to do? We had meetings. We did a website. We told people we were doing an IHOP. How's this going to work? And I just remember he spoke comfort to my heart so clearly. He just goes, Billy. He goes, the fact that you would even try, that you would even move your family out here and just even try, he goes, oh, that just, he goes, that just touches my heart. He goes, oh, do you know how much I love you? And I was just, I remember I was sitting about the third row on the left-hand side in the prayer, and I go, you mean it? Like, you're glad that I even tried? He goes, oh, yeah. Comfort to you right there in the place of the wilderness. And I go, well, I, I guess I can keep trying, huh? And he goes, oh, definitely. I go, but you know, I can't do this without you. He goes, exactly. He's bringing us as a, as, as the church to that place where we realize the job is way too big for us to get it done. All of our props, our ministry props and our, all of our programs and our ways to do things. He's going, keep running, little dude, because just run yourself into the wall, hit it real hard, knock yourself out. Figure out that you can't get it done. What has to happen? He goes, figure that you can't get it done so that you know that you need me. It's in the wilderness that he speaks comfort to you. And then he does this crazy thing. And I can't even get into the rest of this chapter. It's just too awesome stuff. But He does this crazy thing. 
He gives you vineyards from the wilderness. Verse 15. He makes you fruitful in the face of your barrenness. How cool is that? You go, I'm barren. He goes, I know. Watch this. Fruit. And he does this thing called the Valley of Achor. That means trouble. That's where Achan stole the stuff from AI. and they, you know, or Stole the stuff from the city before AI. And they lost to AI. And he had the stuff buried in his tent. And Achan gets killed. And they call that the, the Valley of Achor. It means trouble. He goes, I'm going to take all your troubles and turn them into hope. I'm going to breathe life into you. I'm going to breathe my spirit upon you. I'm going to breathe blessing upon you, fruitfulness in life. In the place where you came to recognition that you had nothing going, he goes, I will then intervene with my life. I will breathe into you in such a way that even your troubles will turn into hopefulness. That's the God that we serve. And he goes through and he describes, and I believe there's so many things in these passages. He describes a movement about of, of, of singing. There's a, she shall sing there. And there's this movement of, like, youth. And then there's this thing about when she came up from the land of Egypt with miracles and signs and wonders. There's this singing youth movement that's got signs and wonders and miracles in abundance. And it says, and in that day, there'll be this revelation. He says, you will not uh, call me my master. You'll call me my husband. Something about this bridegroom thing. It's cool how he's got this thing orchestrated. He says, and I will even, he said, you won't even call me. Uh, he said, I'll take from their mouth the name of all the other lovers, of all the other bales. You won't even remember them anymore. Verse 19, he says, and oh, I love this verse. You know what I'd love? I'd love somebody to get this phrase and study it for about two years and tell me what it means. I will betroth you to me forever. What is what are the implications of that one? The forever betrothal to the divine, beautiful God. Ah, that's a good one. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, loving kindness and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. You shall know the Lord. He says, you know what? You're going to you're going to come face to face with your barrenness in the wilderness, but there'll be a day where you know me through and through. You shall know me. Set your face toward me like Daniel. That's what he's saying. Is set your face toward me because I'll marry you. I'll be betrothed to you. We'll flow together in love with one another, and there'll be a day where you will know me for real. This first grade level of knowledge, you will have left that, and you will really know me. And then it comes to these crazy verses. I'm going to close with this. If I can, hopefully I can explain it well for you. This is the great end time revival right there. 21 through 23. He gives this, he gives this picture, this bridal paradigm, this, this singers and this youth movement with miracles and signs and wonders. And, and there's this, there's this, uh, deliverance thing happening. There's this covenant, covenant of God and this, this thing where he's moving against 
the demonic. He's moving in the spiritual realm against the demonic. That's on verse 18. And there's the, the bridal thing. And he talks about righteousness and justice, loving kindness and mercy. He's a God without contradiction. He's talking about the true knowledge of who he is. And in faithfulness, real faithfulness, it's in the revelation that he loves you that you stay faithful to him. If I could, I could stand up here and go, if you sin, you'll go to hell. And a certain number of you that will cause a, a, a sense of the fear of the Lord in your heart and it will prevail for a season in your life. But if I tell you this, turn away for, from sin for he desires you. He wants you. Desperately he wants you. Turn from those other lovers and turn to him and experience his love. It's got such much, so much more of a captivating effect on our hearts. Both are true. And then he goes and he says, and in that day when all these things are working together in conjunction, this is what we're on a crash course for. We are, we are on a crash collision course with the in that day. And here's what he says. He says, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens. That's an interesting line. You're going to answer the heavens? What do you mean, answer the heavens? What about answering prayer on earth? That would be good. He says, no, I'm going to answer the heavens. Stick with me. I'm closing right here. He says, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer grain with new wine and with oil. I believe that is a literal reality and an allegorical reality. And, and if you'll look through the, through the Old Testament and find those three things together, grain, new wine, and oil, you'll find that it's always talking about a time of the blessing of the Lord and, and the revival of God and, and the, the uh, kingdom of God coming on the earth. Grain, new wine, and oil. He says, and those things will answer, sow us, Jezreel. That's what, it is. that's what it means. Sow us. He says, then I will sow her, talking about the church, the bride, for myself in the earth. And look at these, look at these, this language. Of mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. That's global revival. In every nation of the earth, there'll be a spirit of revival. In every camp where there are people that did not know the Lord, they will know God. That's a good word right there. Come back to this one little thing and then we'll pray. This little answer. It shall come to pass in the day, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens. I prayed about that. I said, God, what is that? When you answer the heavens, what are you talking about? And there's a lot more to it. I've got a whole couple messages here, but here's the point. I believe that the heavens are alive. I believe the everlasting doors and the heavenly gates, they're alive. They're not like earthly doors and gates that have no, no life in them. They're heavenly. And just like all the features in the throne room seem to, to undulate with life, I believe the heavens undulate with life. And in, 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 in a spiritual sort of way, it's an, I believe it's an allegorical thing. And I believe this, that when we cry, rend the heavens and come down, heavenly gates open, I believe the heavens actually witness to the Lord and say, now shall we open. I believe there's a divine communication at some level. Some sort of interaction. The heavens say to the Lord, Lord, shall we open now? He says, it's not the time yet. Let the bowls fill. Let my people's hearts grow in longing. Let the Spirit and the Bride say, come. We'll get to that day, and then it'll happen. 
So we here on earth in the little prayer movement, we cry out. We get up in the morning, we do our 10 a.m. We go Isaiah 64, 1 and 2. Oh, God, run the heavens and come down. And the heavens go, is it time, Lord? And he goes, not yet. The bowls have got to fill. The prayer movement's got to come to fruition all over the planet. There's something happening. Hang on, heavens. We'll get to it in just a minute. He goes, in just a minute. But there's an end that day. And in that day, some little guy, some some 14-year-old, will stand up and he'll stumble over Isaiah 64, 1 and 2. He'll go, Rind, uh, rend, rend the heavens and come down on us, O God. Um, come and help. And the bowls before the throne will be full of prayers. Some little guy or some little gal will say that little prayer and the heavens will go, Lord, now is it time? And he goes, yes. He says, I will answer the heavens and then the heavens will answer the earth. And when the heavens answer the earth, that's talking about outpouring. And then when the earth answers with grain, new wine and oil, that's a sign of salvation, mass miracles and the move of the Spirit of God breaking forth upon the planet. He said, and it's in that day that the nations, those who do not know the name of the Lord, the nations, all those who were not my people, they will be called my people. <laughs> I love this chapter. But it starts with divine discipline. The revelation of a bridegroom God who's even loved us in our harlotries. And then it, it goes to this place of alluring in the wilderness and comfort and fruitfulness. And that's what he's doing with us. I believe that's a word for us right now. IHOP, new staff, people that want to get involved with us here. God's going to allure you. He's Lord, you got you this place. Some of you are going like, how did this happen? I'm on staff. I'm going to be doing 40 hours in the prayer. What am I thinking? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. Just sit in the room. Do it. Because in a minute, you're going to realize the wilderness. He goes, but wait in the wilderness. So I want to comfort you there. Make you fruitful beyond your imagination. Amen. Let's just stand. I'm asking right now, Holy Spirit, would you come? Come and impact our hearts in power. Come and impact our hearts with the reality of who you are. Lord, I know right now clearly that you're speaking specifically to some individuals. Some of you are in this room right now and you're saying, that's exactly where I'm at. God's allured me. Some of you, are, you realize you're in a season of being a Lord. Some of you realize that you're in a season of being a Lord, but you're a little bit like, oh, but the wilderness is coming. Well, maybe. No one ever likes to hear that. Some of you are looking at the wilderness right now. You're in the place of barrenness, and you're going like, when is this going to end? And he's wanting to bring you into this place of comfort, even in the wilderness, because he wants to bring you fruitful fruitfulness in the wilderness. It's from there He gives you vineyards. I'm telling you, God didn't bring you to this place to leave you in it. He brought you to it so He could bring you through it. That's a word from the Lord for several people.